Up next on episode 55 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss killer IDEs, how much interview feedback is appropriate for both parties, and how to teach young programmers who think they know it all from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, let's start with attendance. Somebody, somebody thought that was very funny when we did that last week. <laughs> I'm glad someone thought it was funny. So I think we should do it every week now. <laughs> Jeff. Present. And Joel, present. Good. Present. Check. You have to check. 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 Yes, Check. <laughs> <laughs> a little Fly the Concords reference for anyone who doesn't know. Of course. But, that show's yeah. great. And we, I think we, they're done. They're not making any more, are they? Whatever. No? Huh? Well, they're actually, they were in concert last night in San Francisco. I know that. Cool. I No, but I think that they were just like, they were tired of having to come up with a whole song for every show. Hmm. I hadn't heard that. Because they used I, up all their songs on the first season. And then they did a well, second season. And it was just exhausting for them to come up with like a new song for every single show. It would be like doing a podcast every week or, or, a, or a blog post. <laughs> the only difference is we don't actually come up with anything interesting. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry, listeners. I'm really, really sorry. This is as good as it's going to get. So if you think it's getting any better than this, just, just hit that fast-forward button on your, on your podcast thing and go on to the Adam Carolla talking about his childhood show. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I, I do have one important bit of Stack Overflow news. Oh, good. Yeah. We are going to launch the server fault site tonight. Ooh, ooh. I was going to launch it Monday because I pick. I sort of picked a random day on the calendar. This is a classic geek thing to do, by the way. Not <laughs> I was like, oh, we'll just launch it on this Monday. Yeah. And that happened to be, of course, Memorial Day. And I, I realized, like, as that got closer, I was like, oh, yes, that's a holiday. Right. <laughs> we probably don't want to launch a site that most people use from work based on our traffic patterns on a holiday. That would probably be a bad idea. So I went ahead and moved it to basically midnight tonight. So essentially tomorrow uh, so server fault should public. Yeah, yeah. It's been super. Server fault's been doing great, and uh, you know I'm, I'm happy with the moderators we brought online. There's been a lot of sort of emails we've been sending back and forth about how we're looking at things and how trying to establish you know how we do things and what we're doing and things like that. So I want to get that formalized as well. So I'm, I'm generally pretty happy with the site, and then I think the only complaint people have is they want more pe- more users. Right, because they're more they likely to get to, answers. Well, yeah. exactly. So we'll see what happens. I, I am a little concerned with server fault in that a lot of people get confused about server fault and think it's the place to ask questions about like their personal desktop problems on their own PCs. Yeah, I told you that was going to happen. Well, we always knew this was going to happen. And it hasn't been as bad as I thought, but I think particularly on the first day, all the moderators kind of have to be on lockdown and kind of really have to be watching closely to close things that really don't relate to servers or networking or, you know, IT type stuff where you're dealing with a bunch of desktops. I mean, the guideline I like to use is, okay, if you paid your own money for that machine, yeah. it's probably not a good question for server fault. I mean, there are exceptions to that, of course, um, but that's one of the guidelines. Uh, yeah. And also, if it's if it's for your, your personal workstation versus, you know, someone else's workstation, that's another criteria. Right. So we're still hashing that out internally. That's going to be fun. But it's yeah. not as bad as I thought it would be. No, it's been improving, and I, th- I think people get it after a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, you slap people on the wrist a little bit, and hopefully it's not too much, and they sort of get it. Right. There will be no questions here about where the first Star Starfleet Starship Enterprise was built. <laughs> because you bought that with your own money. That's right. Exactly. And I think that's, that's all I have on Stack Overflow, because it's been kind of a light week because of the holiday and the run-up to the holiday, so there's not a ton of stuff going on other than the uh, new site launch yeah, tonight. Yeah. I have. Uh, oh, I should. Oh, wait. Uh, related to that, I, I do have to mention we actually have a launch sponsor. Oh. For Serverfault, which is Woot. What does that mean? Oh, yay, Woot. Yeah. So there's going to be a little bit of a 
watermark on the site indicating that Wood is sort of underwriting the launch of the site, which is nice. Cool. Um, and we are going to do something a little unusual. We're going to have a uh, – we're creating a new badge. It's not specifically for Wood. The badge is called the Enthusiast Badge. Mm-hmm. It's for somebody who's visited the site. We haven't set the number. They want, they want to say 100, but I think that's going to be really high. You visited the site for N consecutive days. That's the Enthusiast Badge. And we're going to call it the Woot Badge. Why? For the period of the... Oh, they're sponsoring the badge itself? For the period of their endorsement, it's going to be called the Woot Badge. But and eventually, it, it'll eventually convenient. revert back to the Enthusiast Badge. So we Man. thought that would be kind of fun and sort of a tasteful way to do it. Somewhere in, there's an ad salesman inventing these things. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have... We should, probably should mention we actually do have an ad sales team. It's the uh, Alex from the Daily WGF... Uh, his group is actually handling all our ad sales. Right. So, but we we, we believe, and we're, we're always we've always said, and we will continue to try to do this in a very tasteful way. You know, no animation, right. and just the three blocks that we have. We're right. not going to go crazy with the advertising. Yeah. So we don't. And really so far, they've to. done a good job of holding the line and keeping that in, in check. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy. And it it really, to be clear, it really does go towards our salaries. And actually, this will be the first month that. Everybody working on the site, well, not you, Joel, <laughs> but you don't really work on the site, uh, will actually get paid something. So yeah. That's a nice milestone. And that includes me because I kind of have not been paying myself for a while. So No, you got to pay yourself back pay. Exactly. So, it, you know, it does underwrite the development of the site and sort of helps us build the team. And we also saw on the blog we added Jeff Dalgas. Jeff Dalgas is now a formal member of the Stack Overflow yeah. team. We should, have, uh, we should have the developers on again on the podcast. We should absolutely. We should. That was. A, I mean, we haven't done that since um, launch weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Or launch week. So that would be August, last August. Yeah, that was a while. You know, it's funny. We've been doing this. I mentioned we've been doing the podcast for a year, mm-hmm. but now it's coming up on a year that we've actually been doing active development on the, on the website. Yeah, yeah when and does the, uh, stuff, control and stuff like that? I'm going to be in France. Because it always the anniversary is always going to come out that same week that I always take my family vacation thing. <laughs> so I'm never going to be around for the Stack Overflow anniversary. Well, that's too bad. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's this stuff has been going on for a year now. It feels like forever. <laughs> <laughs> You're ready to ready to move on to another career. No, no, no. Actually, I, I love working on Stack Overflow. I really, really do. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my only real regret is that and I think this is true of any small business when you have such a small staff is that you really don't have time off. <laughs> you really, you know, like I'm, I'm on my vacation, I'm answering stack overflow emails. Yeah. And keeping the site alive and checking I on remember it. Like really early on in fog Creek's history, we were, we were already selling fog bugs. We were hosting our own server and it was just me and Michael for a couple of years there at the beginning. And, uh, we both went away for a week to Hawaii for a friend's vacation, uh, a friend's wedding, a vacation for a friend's, you all know what I mean. Yes, and, we do. Uh, and we were like, wow, we're going to be away for a week. You know, what, what, what happens if the site goes down, if the whole company goes down, if somebody calls Fog <laughs> Creek <laughs> the phone rings? Like, well, uh, nothing, I guess. Yeah, eventually it sort of takes on a life of its own. And, yeah. you know, we've always said this is a community-driven thing. And, you know, another thing we're working on with regards to com- being community-driven is we're going to do a dump of the database because everything is uh, CC Wiki mm-hmm. that people, you know, contribute to the site. So, And we actually have some beta versions that we're sort of in private beta testing with that with Greg Hugel. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, he was the user that was a... most interested in it. He's on the front page, well, first page of users. He's been around Stack Overflow for a long, long time. So he's sort of checking it, make sure we don't make any stupid mistakes. Like, we don't want to reveal anybody's personal information or right, right. <laughs> anything dumb like that. So we trust Greg, and he's helping us sort of hopefully get it right. And it also include all the data that people want to, because some people really want to analyze this data set and see the patterns and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I believe in giving that stuff back to the community. Everybody contributed it, so there's no reason we can't put it back out there. Right. So... Exactly, unlike certain other websites that everybody contributed and then they started charging for it. Well, that is a weird business model, and, and they're not the only ones to do that. There was also that, that sure. music database, the yeah, CD, CDDB. Got that was the classic of... example. Yeah. All these people had put in all the CD track data. Yep. It's like, oh, yeah, it's this free thing, and then all of a sudden it's like, guess what? This is now a paid database. It's mm-hmm. like, that's kind of a dick move, frankly. 
It you sort know? of is, but if you had to go find, if you decided you wanted to do that, and you had to go try to find those people and give them, I don't know, two dollars, so it wouldn't be dickish, it'd be impossible. That's the, sort of the problem. That's well, why I you think, really have to decide ahead of time what's going to be the business model under which people contribute. Well, I think it's a little. Well, I guess it. you could be a nonprofit, right? That's another strategy. Obviously, we're not nonprofit, so we can't say that. But for Wikipedia, it's simple. It's like, okay, you're contributing this thing that that will ultimately go forward in time and help. All these other people, yeah. you could kind of make that argument about CDDB if if they became a nonprofit, right? It's like, mm-hmm. well, the next ten thousand people to put in the CD will benefit from your data entry. Mm-hmm. Um, and to to some a certain extent, we want to, you know, we have wiki like aspects to Stack Overflow, and we want to um, have that model carry for us as well. We're ultimately trying to help other programmers, right? Um, and we're trying to build a business too. So we're, a lot of times, I think we're trying to do this weird hybrid model, <laughs> you know, uh, mix things that. Maybe shouldn't necessarily be mixed, but we'll we'll see how it goes. Okay. Well, we got some listener questions. We got some Stack Overflow questions. What do you want to do uh, with our uh, uh, podcast uh, this I, week? I leave it in your capable hands. All right. Well, what's, what we're we going to do? I got. I'm on my Macintosh. It says software updates are available for your computer. Do you want to install them? So I think for the rest of today's show, I'm going to go ahead and narrate the process. It's asking <laughs> me for my password. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I think I typed a password wrong, though. It didn't care. That's not That's not right. I know I typed a password wrong, and it just did it anyway. Now what have I done? Have I changed my password? It's just a mystery. Well, let that go. No? All right, Does let's take some listener questions. <laughs> it's, it's because the Mac is too easy to use. That's the problem. <laughs> oh, this is going to be sort of like a vacation week for the podcast. Um, here, here's a <laughs> question from Tim in Austin. Hey, Joel and Jeff, this is Tim in Austin. I've been listening since the first podcast and uh, enjoy and look forward to them every week. Anyway, I have sad news. Uh, I recently read on uh, Steve Yege's blog that he's only got a few more blogs to go and he's going to quit. And I thought maybe if you guys could mention this on the podcast and help us talk him out of it, help him uh, see the light in that Maybe he'll change his mind. Anyway, keep up the good work. Talk to you later. Well, I think we were part of the problem there, frankly, <laughs> because what? when I when well when he was on our podcast, remember yeah. I wrote up the show notes wrong. I made a mistake in the show notes uh-huh. and kind of attributed the whole JavaScript compilation engine that Google is working on to Steve, not intentionally, but. Steve emailed us pretty rapidly. It sounds like that was kind of a problem. Oh, come on. He's not going to quit blogging just because of what you put in your show well, notes. But, but, but my point is, well, okay, I have a, I have a point here. I think there's a and word for that. that. It's is it narcissism. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I'm using it as an example. The example is that yeah. when you become a high-profile person, yeah. then everything you say becomes a big deal. Even things that are misinterpreted or little things you said you didn't really mean a certain way, that is they become like true. a problem for you. Yeah. Like everything you say is poured over to such a degree and becomes such a publicity thing. You have to start that writing. It actually impacts your day-to-day work, right? Yeah, you have to write very defensively. Yeah. But but Steve Yegi, he just writes about like, uh, you know, the truth is the, the Steve Yegi classics were really about a, the programming language wars. And don't get me wrong, I love Steve Yegi, but I feel like kind of obsessing over your tools, what tools you will pick, which programming language you will use, is something that people kind of get a little bit bored with as their career moves on. So maybe he's just sort of bored with that. It's sort of like, you know, the kid wants to learn how to play guitar, right? So he goes down to, what's that chain of guitar stores called? Guitar store. Center is the one near us. Uh, there's like a big chain, guitar shop, guitar, whatever. Anyway, and, 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 he st- and he starts posting on the news group saying, you know, what's the best pick to get? What's the guitar best guitar to get? And what's the best? And he just sort of obsesses over which guitar to get and how to lip bubble. And he hasn't learned how to play four chords yet, but he's already spent, you know, $960 on accessories for his guitar. And meanwhile, the real musicians just pick up any old guitar and have a good old time, you know, have fun playing it. So there's right. sort of a temptation when you're getting into a, when you're, when you're sort of new to something, which I'm not saying that Steve Yeggy was new to programming at all. Not, not at all. I'm just saying that there's the, the, the whole like endless conversation over, well, this programming language is better, that programming language is better, and I want to choose what programming language to use. To me, sounds a lot like a bunch of teenagers chatting over like, which, which car is best, and none of them even has a car. 
you know, because right. they're teenagers. And and um, at, at some point, you you, you kind of you, you you move on. And and some people are always still interested in languages, and that's cool. And I'm not saying you shouldn't p- pick the best language for the job. You obviously always want to pick the best language for the job, and different languages have different strengths, and so on and so forth. It's just that like sort of the obsessive quest for the perfect programming language, and and the kind of endless blogging and talking about that. Uh, eventually, it just gets boring, and you just get on to doing your work, and you realize you can have just as so much fun in pretty much any programming language. Well, I think it's a little broader than that. I think eventually, if you get enough publicity, you sort of become your own brand, for yeah. better or worse. And I think if you work at a company like Google, which yeah, Google be- is still very, very secretive, right? I mean, there's not Apple level secretive quite, but close. Yeah, they're much more secretive. You know, you than- can't really be out there talking about stuff too yeah, like, much. Yeah, like who are the Google bloggers outside of, like compared to Microsoft, which has 9 million bloggers? And they're just yeah, talking about Yeah, I mean, how many Apple bloggers doing? are there? Yeah. You know? It, it becomes kind of a problem. And it's the same thing I said to like Clay Shirky. It's like eventually you become, you know, Clay Shirky Inc. It doesn't really matter where you're attached. You're yeah. sort of your own brand. And you have to be comfortable with that, right? And I think Steve is the kind of guy, and this is just the impression, again, I don't want to speak for Steve, that he wants to just, you know, turtle down and build his stuff. And he doesn't really want to get distracted by the whole branding thing and becoming, you know, a whole deal unto himself. Right. That's not really his thing. It's just sort of accidental. And then also he's got his fiction thing. So I don't know how that works into the whole pattern uh he likes to write fiction too so yeah that's sort of a new thing isn't it I don't know, that he's, well he was doing some i mean some of it was like thinly veiled commentary on some of the stuff that was going on at google mm-hmm. you know he was trying to sort of talk about it without talking about it which is weird but and then i think some of it is just he wants to be a writer i mean as much as the guy writes obviously he wants to be a writer i mean i can't even imagine writing i think he's gonna keep blogging i wouldn't worry about it i think he's gonna keep blogging everybody threatens to quit well, I think if you got it inside you and you just got to get it out one way or the other, it's it is hard to quit. So, well, here's kind of a related we'll see what, question. We'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens. We have no power over Steve, unfortunately. But, but yeah, if you didn't know, Steve has said that he's going to stop blogging. So, you know, he did an internal blog, blog at Amazon for years, and That's, he's probably written more posts internally for Amazon than he has like as a as a as a public blogger, all of which were available on the internet. In, in various Eventually, ways. after he left Amazon, yeah. he published, and then they became very popular. Yeah, because they were good. Yeah. So yeah, I, I hope he continues. I mean, it's the same thing I say to every really good blogger that writes a lot. Is you know, I, I certainly hope they continue. So here's another Hi, related question. Justin. Oops. Yeah, it's from Chris. Chris Holiday calling. Uh, you both, by any stretch of the imagination, have successful websites. I was wondering if uh, you guys could point to a particular article you wrote or a time in which you both realized that, hey, this website's going somewhere. Thank you. Bye. Uh, that's probably more interesting for you, Joel, because you were so much earlier than I was. Really? Um, I knew yeah, I was you started successful like, when Jeff Atwood said that I jumped the shark. <laughs> that was pretty much... No, no, that was when we fell in love. That was, our, that was when oh, we first okay. fell in love. No, you know when it was? <laughs> it was the first time that Dave Weiner linked to me. Because that was what you really? did in those days. That was the only way you got any traffic. If Dave Warner didn't link to you, there was, there was nobody else linking. There's no other way to ever get any kind of traffic whatsoever. Right. Having a blog or a website. So if Dave Weiner blessed your blog, it was all of a sudden it was good. It was a thing. Uh, yeah, and you got people reading it. I mean, you, you would go from four hits a day to you know yes. 20,000, and those people would stick around. Uh, I think there's a greater lesson there, which is if you can attract the attention of sort of the people that you admire, and not in a gamey way, but in a way where they sort of organically see your stuff and like it, mm-hmm. that probably the, the proudest moment that I think I had. Right. Uh, certainly just getting people that I respect to link to my blog, not by asking them, but because they saw it and said, this is really good. Yeah. Certainly that's – and I think there are milestones like that. I, I think um, – Scoble, Scobleized me once and just had very complimentary things to say about my blog, and I, I didn't ask him to. Oh, cool. Uh, and Scott Hanselman did that once. and that's always great. And I, yeah, those are, those are some high points. And then beyond that, there are some posts I had that would just go really hyper-viral. Probably the biggest one still to this day was the, why can't programmers program? I have no idea why that struck such a chord with so many people. Oh, that just blew my mind. <laughs> it's so true. And it's, you know, it's, 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 a head, it's headline worthy i think you know like well, the, yeah, I and, and when i wrote it people accuse me of writing these really incendiary articles just to get attention and it's really not at all 
yeah. mean, maybe that's how it looks from the outside, but it's really just I'm trying to keep myself entertained, honestly. <laughs> and like, I'm like, okay, what would I want to read? You know, and I just write what I would want to read. I'm not trying to be incendiary. And a lot of times I'll write stuff that I'm like, oh, this is going to be fascinating. Lots of people are going to link to this. They're going to find this interesting. And people are like, meh, don't care, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then you write some little piece like, why can't programmers program? And like, everybody's obsessed with it. You know, yeah. it's all over the internet. Um, uh, so I, I think that's the other leads. way you market. What was your first article, Joel, that you felt went got super super popular and was linked everywhere? Uh, I don't know. I have to figure. I'd have to go back and look at the scripting news archives to see what that article was that they wanted first linked to. Really, that was the one. Yeah, it had to be. So it was like a two in one. I don't think any one per- person linked to that one. They just got every. It captured the imagination of just so many bloggers. Well, once you have some traffic, you can get more traffic. But I mean, I had zero traffic. The only reason Day Warner even saw it is because it was on editthispage.com, which was his, his service for, for bloggers there. Let's see. I can go to the little, the archive here on my website. Go all the way back to March 2000. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was one of the, It was actually in the first month. I mean, it was pretty... No, it wasn't, actually, because it was in the summer, I think. Oh, who knows? <laughs> but anyway, the, the, I think the, the, the advice we're giving him is... is the same on both sides, which is getting people you admire to, to link to you just organically is probably yeah, the first key. Yeah, I don't know if it's really advice. I, yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to call it advice because, you know, what worked in the year 2000 when the internet was very different than it is, you know, 10 years later may not be what works anymore. Well, it's easier because I think you have less of a power structure. There's There's like lots of people writing on the internet now. There's lots right. of people to admire. There's lots of really good but there's writers lots of competition out there. Too. Yeah, but that you know you can get noticed by sort of the next person up in the chain, rather than having to be Dave Warner, who's like king of the internet, right? Yeah. Let's take sort of a programming question here, or uh, yep. uh, this is actually an idea. Hi, Jeff and Joel. My name's Ohad. Shalom, Joel. See, I got a shalom, and you just got a hi. But I also got a high, so I got two. Hi, Jeff and Joel. Nice. My name is Ohad. I'll play it Shalom, again Joel. in case you missed that. Um, <laughs> first of all, thanks for uh, keeping on doing your podcast. I'm enjoying listening to it. I had a small idea I wanted to share with uh, your listeners. It's, um, it's about putting um, rich content into source code as comments. So right now we're all using text, but why not use images, screenshots of web pages, um, snippets of design documents, and whatnot? Um, I have a few screenshots up at the bit.ly slash q1x. You can bring that up while I'm blabbing here. Um, be very happy to hear what you guys are thinking of it. Maybe somebody would be interested to do an Eclipse plugin or something like that. So thanks again. See ya. Oh, my God. Oh, I see what this is. This is the plug my, my document call. But... I've actually talked about this before, is that I, I'm really deeply disappointed in the current state of IDEs. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like there's so much more we could do in IDEs, and it's just the the very, we're not even scratching the surface. I mean, because what can we do now? What, ASCII art, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, um, that's actually true. Sometimes you want to write a comment where you explain a flow, or you want to make a little chart, and then it would really help if you could do just a, like a simple illustration, could 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 speak a million words. Could, is that the word? Picture, paint, a thousand paintbrushes? How does that expression go? Or like embed, like a lot of times uh, you, you have, you could link to the Wikipedia article if it was like a live in place link rather than just, you know, well, you can a definitely, hyperlink I mean, that you click. Oh, and have the, the, the Wikipedia article actually brought into the source code basically at that point. Yeah, or just a relevant snippet or something. Sure. I don't know. I mean, you, you still want to do some quoting. So I, I think that. Even if you could link to Wikipedia, you probably want to quote the relevant section like in ASCII right there so you don't have to have a dependency on the website for it to come up. Yep, yep. That's sort of funny. I, I, I don't know why this just never – I mean it would, wouldn't be hard, I don't think. Maybe it would. Maybe it's just the, the fact that we have so many tools that use source code and they all assume text files. And every time you try to have something that's not a text file – you know, the, the, none of your tools work all of a sudden. They all fall apart. Well, we have HTML, right? I mean, there could be some sort of meta markup. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That would somehow be understood. Um, I, I, I would certainly like to see a lot more visualization of some of the data structures that you're dealing with. Like, even in the source code, right. I, I don't know exactly how this works. I think this gets very conceptual very rapidly, which makes it hard to talk about. Um, but I think for me, it's like I want to visualize a lot of stuff in my code. 
you know, having the flat text representation is, you know, it, it's sort of not very alive. Yeah, it's sort of, some like, you know, sort of bring it to life. One thing that uh, when, when, when I was designing the Fog Creek office space, I used to have to call up the architect every three days and try to describe something that was like, you know, and then the, the and, and I, first of all, I had to learn all these words like mullion and say, well, we need the office partitions to line up with a mullion. And I couldn't just say I need the office windows to line up with the thingamajiggy in the middle of the walls. I had to say, you know, if you use the technical words, it worked better kind of. And and I, I actually got good at kind of trying to describe things that ordinarily it would be much easier to sketch out. And that's the same sort right. of pain you feel when you're trying to write a comment and you really just wish you could just draw it because if you could draw it, that would tell, you know, that would explain the whole thing. So some kind of scratchy well, thing, but you also want to prevent people from going too far overboard, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, ASCII has a lot of power, right? I mean, right. programmers of, of all people know that words are super, super powerful. So a lot of times you don't necessarily need that much more. Now, I'm, I'm actually looking at an old poster in January 2005. It's called It's the IDE Dummy. And I was just talking about the power of the IDE and relative to the language. And I think this is kind of what Steve Yegi was getting at when he was talking about how we're doing it backwards. That was his big catchphrase for that podcast was that you know the IDEs have to, be, have to write special support for the languages, but it should really be the other way around. The languages should have special support for IDEs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had a sort of a list here of, of what I recommended people, people developing IDEs do. Um, and I, I want to go down the list because I think it's it's germane to the topic, and I think it's we still haven't gotten that far since 2005, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so number one was basically copy all the really cool features from existing IDEs, right? So if you're building a new IDE, make sure there's no good feature out there that you haven't like copied and subsumed into your own IDE. Uh, number two, like the IDE should be tied to the idioms of the language. This might be a little controversial, but I feel like the IDE should be optimized for your particular language rather than the one-size-fits-all. You know, oh, you can program in COBOL, you could program in, you know, Java, you could program in, mm-hmm. you know... I don't know, it just seemed kind of limiting that languages have different strengths, and I think the IDEs should play to those strengths. Um, then the third point was about extensions. Uh First of all, you want a vibrant extension ecosystem. That's that's the Firefox story in a nutshell. It has this incredible extension ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think the way to develop at that point when you have such a good extension ecosystem is you take the most popular extensions and fold them into the product. Like if you're not taking the top five extensions mm-hmm. and merging them into your product, you are failing. Because the community is doing this fantastic design work for you and you're basically ignoring it. It always frustrated me. There was all these really popular add-ins for Visual Studio. I'm like, is the Visual Studio team just not paying attention to to what's selling? Oh, so you're saying that Visual Studio should look at what add-ins are on the market and then duplicate that code themselves and put the add Or in the case of the Eclipse Foundation, right, they should take the most popular add-ins and ship them. If it's it's Eclipse and it's all open source and it's fine. But in the case of Visual Studio, then what that says is we're taking the people that are doing the best job of making add-ins because they're commercial add-ins, and we're going to put them out of business by competing against them. And whatever add-in idea they come up with, we're going to fold that back into the main product, thus putting them out of business. And that creates an enormous disincentive to anybody to make add-ins because the reason they're making add-ins in the Visual Studio world is to make money by selling them. Well, then what they should do then is buy those companies. I mean, I guess that's the commercial way. Yeah. It's like if you have a really kick-butt thing that you're selling that's an add-in for this product, the – the parent company that's making you know all this money should pony up the money to buy this company. So then you get in. into a negotiation, and, but there's a maximum price you, you, they would ever pay for that, which is like, listen, I'll do you a favor. I'll buy you instead of putting you out of business. Or <laughs> we could just put you out of business. And that amount of money that they're willing to pay to do that may not be enough for this company to agree to sell out. And then just everybody's unhappy. And eventually the, the, the bottom line is it's, it's a, you, you probably don't want to try to make a living selling add-ins that fill in a hole in another vendor's product. Like if a, if a vendor has a product and it's got an obvious gap in it, you can, there's, a, there's an obvious business filling that gap, but the, the vendor knows about the gap and they, they're going to fix it eventually. And then you're going to be out of business. They might buy you to fix their gap or they might not. You only have one possible company you can sell to. Well, but, but look at it from – I hear what you're saying, and I totally agree that it, it gets weird in terms of you know, who has the power in that situation. Yeah. But think about it from the consumer's perspective, from oh, yeah. the programmer's perspective. I don't want to have to go buy an ID and then buy these three add-ins sure, that make sure. it what it should have been 
when I got it out when of the box. It. I mean, that's not a good yeah. experience for me, the consumer, because I have to deal with the licensing. I have to deal with more money. <laughs> it's just a pain in the butt. It's just like I want all the good stuff. It sure is. All, all the essentials in the box. Right, right. In fact, of, of that, all that, the IDs, like, I think the only ID that really has any kind of th- uh, marketplace where people are actually make money selling add-ins is, is, is Visual Studio. And it's only a couple of companies that actually make money selling add-ins for that. Right. Um, I feel like kind of the bad guy for advocating that they put these companies out of business, but that wasn't really what I was advocating. But I guess, <laughs> I mean, I guess you could have like the starter version that has the core features, the really key one or two things that it does that everybody would want. And then they could sell the upgrade version of, okay, then you get the pro version that does all this other really cool stuff. Well, it's either right? cool or it isn't, right? If it's cool, then you want to have it. And if it's not cool, then why would you pay for it? Like, where do you well, I think the there's line? a way to walk the line there. I mean, there's like yeah. the whole freemium model, you know, where you, yeah, you have the yeah, core yeah, product yeah. that's free and you sell, upsell all these other things. That's and, what, I mean, you know who does that? Dot for Skype does that really well. Yeah, it's Skype. I will say that. that Skype does that really well. Sure. And in a tasteful way because the core use of the Skype product is free. You know, making calls internationally. But if you want, like, to call into a phone number that costs a little bit or have your own phone number that people can call and rings on your computer, I pay for that. So they've mm-hmm. upsold me. So I, I think there are ways to do it. It's definitely tricky. So Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, was that the end of the list? I think so. Basically, uh, the, the next thing I was proposing was having a contest to have the best user-designed IDE add-in. In other words, with the intent that at the end of the contest, we're going to take these and fold them into the product. There's no expectation of you're going to make a company. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I think so it really, that, that would be one th- th- This is just a, it's just a, a bad business to be in, filling in the gap in somebody else's infrastructure. And so if you're going to build an add-in wor- world, you probably have to build it in a way that, um, that, the, that the add-ins are, are assumed to either be free or, or I mean, the, other, the, the only way you can really sell an add-in is if you're providing some very, very niche thing. Like let's say that you've got the Visual Studio add-in that allows it to talk to some crazy nuclear power plant thing. And there's four mm-hmm. people that ever need this, but they really need it. And then you, right. sell, you sell four copies of your add-in for a million dollars each. And there's, there's value there all around. So, you know, that's a, that's, that's a legit market. But if it's just like, hey, I've got a better keyboard shortcuts for Visual Studio, then you probably don't want to have that be your business model um, because eventually if what you do is good enough, then the vendor of, of your platform is going to have to copy it. Wasn't that true of like the industry in general though? Sure. I mean, can you make that argument about competing like Excel versus, you know, well, it's always true with, Pro? With like, and- uh, it's always true with like vendors and the people that, that build on top of their platforms. It's, it hasn't really been true. You know, like let's say that you're like, look at the Windows market. All right, so, so the Windows market was very successful for people that wanted to build on top of Windows and make money doing that because they could build something that Microsoft didn't want to build or wasn't interested in and make money doing that uh, and because Microsoft couldn't do everything. On the other hand, uh, there, there were certain things that were built on top of Windows that were basically just utilities to work around some limitation of Windows itself. You know, so there were alternate shells and alternate file managers and you know, keyboard recorders and that's all those like sort of utilities. And anything that was good eventually got folded into the Windows core product or just got re-implemented by Microsoft, uh, usually in a better way than all these utility vendors. So half of the shareware that's out there is, you know, filling in some limitation in Windows or in DOS that doesn't exist anymore. You know, remember all the DOS shareware for Terminate and Stay Resident programs? Right. I do. And, you know, eventually that, it was compelling to multiprocess, so, so Microsoft had to build a multiprocessing operating system. Um, or Stacker, which got into a big lawsuit with Microsoft and was eventually gone by, putting, by building in compression into, uh, you know, so that your hard drive would always uh, compress everything automatically and silently. I remember and that. That was a business for a while, and eventually it just got added to DOS in a way which um, uh, they sued Microsoft for patent infringement in that case. And they actually won uh, the lawsuit against Microsoft, but they're they're still sort of gone. And Microsoft did not actually infringe their patent, so. But the well, jury thought they did. Well, this is kind of a universal problem. Is what I'm getting at. This is like, yeah. there's something. Just at its core here, that's not going to go away. You know, there's some tension here in the model that you're going to have to deal with. Yep. Unless you're open source, in which case that's that's sort of the out. And ultimately, maybe that is the answer. Maybe everything eventually has to be open source. <laughs> Yeah, I think and it's really more. Yeah, yeah, just go away. 
you know, licensing goes away. All these, you know, what can we include? What can we include? That goes away. It's amazing how many problems go away. Of course, getting your programmers <laughs> paid becomes a new problem. <laughs> Well, that becomes a new problem, but from the <laughs> consumer's perspective, yeah. let me tell you, everything is a lot of attraction. Right. You know, you have the source code, yeah. So, for what it's worth, do you have any other uh, questions, or are we? Uh, no, that's it. That was our three listener questions. Hey, hey there was something that um, I sent you an email, and we were asking. Uh, we should talk about. Oh, that. right. It was about was? feedback. Okay. Oh, it was yeah, about yeah, interviews. Yeah. Right. So the qu- the question is, if you're at a job interview yeah. and for whatever reason you don't make it, how much feedback should you expect? Should should you get about right. like why you didn't get the job? I mean, yeah. let me give you my position first. My position first is that I think you need enough feedback that you know sort of why why it didn't work out, so you can adjust or you know, you know maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was just some particular things. Like you wore a red shirt, and man, I tell you, we really hate red shirts. Well, if you tell somebody you know? that, you're, you're not going to win any friends, <laughs> even if it's true. Uh, <laughs> well, that was a very yeah. arbitrary example. Maybe that's like the Star Trek example. You know, the red shirt guys always. Well, get what killed. if you do? If the guy, let, let's say that you interview somebody, and you're like, you know, smart, but I just would not want to work with him because he's like. Uh, Creepy a little bit, maybe a little annoying, maybe a little, <laughs> a little you know, like a little needy. Are you trying to tell me, Joel? Joel, is this, is this a confessional aspect to this? <laughs> no, but it has happened that we have, that I have decided not to hire somebody because I thought that they're, honestly, I just don't want to work with them. Interesting. Because they're just like, well, a, you know, you Well, there are ways to say, wait, wait, no, we've had harder questions than this on the podcast. We've had questions about coworkers that were stinky, remember? Yeah. And that's like the hardest topic to talk about. My God, compared sure. to this, this is easy. I would just say something like, you know, we felt like it wasn't a good match from a personality standpoint. I don't think you need to go into great detail. This is where it gets cruel. Like if you say, you know what? You yeah. have an obnoxious personality and everyone hated you when they were here. <laughs> you could just say, you know, it wasn't a good fit just because of personality issues. And I mean, you, maybe other just real super broad strokes. But I do think it helps because you want to give that person feedback. So you in do. theory, you do in theory, they can fix this. What I've felt in practice comes up so often is that you, you interview somebody and you discover that they're not smart enough to be a programmer at your company or they're just like they're not getting things fast enough. They just don't seem smart or you're afraid that they won't get things done. And when, when, I, when I say not smart, I don't mean you haven't yet learned the skills you need to know. I mean you're just genuinely not smart. And it happens. It's okay. There are some not smart people in the world. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person, although it might <laughs> so, so this person then sends you an email, and then you say, "Thank you very much for coming in. We, you know, we got lots of great candidates. It's really hard for us to choose between them. I'm afraid at this time we're just not going to be able to offer anything." And then they send you that's our standard form letter, and it has to be a form letter. And then sometimes they're upset because it's a form letter. But what can you do? I mean, we're rejecting 37 people a day here. How can I do that without a form letter? Uh, all right. So then they say, "Well, thanks a lot. Really appreciate the opportunity to interview. You're a great company. I wonder if you could give me any feedback." Uh, on on the on you know any specific things you know just to help me out for future interviews and that kind of stuff, and right. I Which think is this totally is, reasonable. Yeah, and this sounds totally reasonable, and I think it's what all the job get a job books advise you to ask. Um, but to me, what that sounds like is, what could I have changed in the way in which I interviewed for the next interview so that you would hire me? And what I'm thinking is, you know, it's not how you interviewed; it's who we discovered you to be. Right? It's not that you did something wrong in the interview. Like, oh, just next time, just sit on your hands. Be very careful not to pick your nose and eat it, and you'll probably get the job next time. Because that's not what it is. It's not like something happened in the interview. I'm just using the interview is just like a window I'm looking through to, to, to see what you were like inside. And when I look inside, I'm just your bedroom's a mess. And now you're telling me, you know, what should I change about the window? And I'm telling you, you know, nothing. I mean, you could try to cover it up with a picture of some other bedroom, but it won't look realistic. My, my this is very fatalistic. Really this is a very, very pessimistic and fatalistic view. Well, I mean, now this does not always know. happen. Sometimes this ha- it happens this way. Sometimes it happens another way. Sometimes uh, it, it has occasionally happened where, where where we've interviewed somebody. Uh, this happened recently, actually, um, where we interviewed somebody and we were like, "This guy's really smart, really sharp, really like him, but just not ready. Like, just is not just is not learned enough yet." And um, if it was for an internship, that would probably be fine because, you know, he's got another year of school. He or she has another year or two of school and, um, you know, and they, they got all kinds of opportunities to, you know, and if they're moving forward quickly, that's fine. But um, for a full-time position, we sort of expect them to kind of be at a certain level, you know, to have learned 
you know, certain things about coding that I don't need them to, you know, I don't, 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 don't expect them to be able to learn on the job necessarily. Um, so, uh, you know, in that case, you might say, listen, it's really just a case that you're just not ready. And in a couple more years, you may have, you know, you may, you, you will have hopefully learned a lot more and you'll be ready. So sometimes you have like a very specific answer like that. And sometimes, but sometimes it's just like, you know, you're just not smart enough. And, and that, 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 that's, I know that, and this is unfortunately, if I tell an interview candidate, if I tell a candidate, you're not smart enough, then that makes them feel bad without giving them anything that they can use to help get a job, you know, further on down the line. And so well, I feel like I, that's I agree, but, cool but I think than... the way you're stating it is the problem. It's like, okay, not smart enough in what dimension? I mean, I don't know. It's just yeah. smart is such a broad term that that doesn't even... No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I, I guess it's... maybe the what, what I'm hearing is that you have to treat it almost like romantic relationships where there's just not chemistry. Okay. That might, yeah, that I'm going to use smart as a synonym for chemistry. You just didn't have the chemistry that you needed to get the job. And I think, honestly, this is true. I mean, I know you guys are very, very selective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still just quirks to the Fog Creek culture and the way that you hire that, you know, like sure. you said, you'd rather reject 50 candidates accidentally just to get the one that's, you know, absolutely correct. And mm-hmm. I, I totally respect that. But I think people coming into the interview situation have to know that. It's like you'll be rejected for things that seem completely arbitrary from the outside. Right, but internally to you guys, it's it's about having the chemistry, and the chemistry includes this intangible of are you smart, and like how do you measure smart? Right. I mean, there's a lot of super successful people that are really idiots, right? <laughs> we know <laughs> they're that smart at something. To be true, <laughs> they're either smart at something or they inherited a lot of money, but they're good at something in some dimension. And I definitely agree that there are different dimensions. I mean, yeah, people- there's different dimensions, and you guys are measuring in one the Fog Creek dimension, and like sure. don't take it personally. And this is kind of what I tell people that if I know they're going to apply for a job at Fog Creek, I'm like, look. <laughs> Fog Creek is super, super selective, so don't take it personally if they we don't. We reject a lot of brilliant people who go on to very, be very, very successful elsewhere. And in fact, that's actually pretty common for people that get that, – that, I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the smart people that we've rejected for various reasons. Um, I mean, and it's just like I think it's the same attitude of like, okay, if you're in a romantic relationship, it doesn't work out. Well, tell me why it didn't work out. You right. you, you can't analyze this with your left brain, right? You can't sure. say these are the five reasons yeah. that this romantic relationship did not work out for you and this other person. Yeah. You know, ultimately, you're just like screw it, move on, learn from it in some way, whatever way you can, and then just pick another relationship and learn from that. You know, don't agonize too much. I mean. There's yeah. a limit to what you can analyze yeah. about these situations. There's some. I mean, sometimes it is clear. Like, I remember that there's this great Google jobs blog. I have to put this in the show notes where there was this candidate who had an interview. At one point, he, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but he spilled a drink all over his interviewer, like in some explosive way. Oh, no higher. Absolutely. Good God. <laughs> right, 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 right. And it wasn't really, he was super don't nervous. Spill a drink. Like, he was, yeah. He was sweating really badly and like he just somehow managed to flail and like his drink, uh, it was just bad. So sometimes you do know why. <laughs> well, wait, no, but I wouldn't reject somebody for that if they were a smart programmer and they were just nervous. I mean, that's a bad reason he to was, reject somebody. He Honestly, was extremely nervous. It doesn't matter. There's nothing you can do in the interview that's a part of the interview process itself except, well, I mean, like, I guess you could, tr- you could stab somebody. <laughs> and, and, you know... <laughs> Or, or the other thing, you know what you can do? It, it's okay. not. It's not. The, the, I, I've seen people get rejected because they um, – uh, Even we, we even had a case like this in Fog Creek's history sometime in the nine years of Fog Creek. We had an interviewer come in that just basically treated the uh, uh, office manager who was also basically running our recruiting um, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, extreme disrespect and, uh, you know, as if she was sort of a secretary there to, to help him out with all his little problems, as if she was his personal concierge. And and he was very suck uppy to all the people with power, but you know, but not to her. He just sort of you know was rude, and 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 that was uh, and, and well, that's so, just dumb. Yeah, because you know the the people who do that have the most power in the office anyway. So that's like just ignorance of the way the world works, right yeah, there. Exactly, and it's also just like it's like okay, you know what? You're not a nice person. That's all there is to it. If you can't be nice to everybody, then you're just not a nice person. I don't want to hire you. Well, that's a good example because how would you say that to that person? Like, say, so say, I they would not. Say, Look, I really thing. want to know. I have two choices. I could tell the person, listen, try to be polite to everybody you ever meet. But now yes. all I've done is I've I've made it so that this guy has a better chance of getting a job and being a cruel bad person with a job somewhere else. So I've just inflicted his problem on some other employer somewhere else. Oh wow! Like you know what? I'm perfect. I'm I'm actually kind of happy that he has this that we found out. You want them to nice person. You you actually want people to have these problems. You know, you You actually don't want them to fix themselves. (sighs) It's that it's that something 
you know, yeah, yeah. Something about his personality. It's not if he could if if he could become a nice person, that would be a whole different story. And I'd be like, sure. Here's your one piece of advice to be a nice person. But instead, what you're telling him is, I want. Here's a little trick you can use to pretend to be a nice person, so you might slip in the door somewhere else. And that, to me, you know, to me, the interview process again, it's like trying to open a window, find out who the person is. And I'm not going to give you advice to help you disguise who you are. You know, that's just going to, and I don't want to like insult you and tell you it's because you weren't nice or because you were anywho. Right. Well, maybe that's, maybe we're talking about an extreme case and considering that representative. I'm assuming most people don't have those kind of It's just important to remember major deficiencies. It, it's not what you did in the interview. It's not what you said. It's not what you, it's, it's who you were and that was reflected through what you did. And so I can't tell you a way to do something differently that is more likely to get you hired. I mean, I might be able to give you some tips and tricks that will impress somebody, but not me, because I feel like we, we were able to figure out whether or not you were smart and get things done. And you're just not. And that's why you weren't hired. And uh, that's the best I can do there. Well, and that's what, just a kind of insulting thing to tell a lot of people. So, Sure. No, I, I agree in that case. Yeah. But my other piece of advice for people interviewing is like, if, if the company doesn't like you, then that's their problem. You know, it's sure. like, I think you should have enough confidence in, in who you are and, and what you do that if, if you realize that the company isn't smart enough to see that you're really good at what you do, then I would view that as their problem. Sure. Not, and like, not to the yeah. point that I would get you know, aggressive about it, but ultimately just move on. You know, It's like, well, they're not cool enough to understand that I'm the most awesome programmer who's ever been born. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just, just move on until you find the right uh, company that does see you for, for what you have to offer. Um, Absolutely. I don't know. I, I think it helps your self-confidence to think of it that way too. Yeah. Because there's always, there's always jobs. Yeah, you should. I mean, the truth is the way most people treat the job process is not like, oh, there's this one job I just got to have and, and, and base their entire, you know, the way they treat it is, all right, I'm going to find, you know, five to 10 companies that I think are interesting. I'm going to apply to a bunch of them and I'm going to get some of them and I'll get some offers and I won't get some other offers. And I'll take the one that seems best of the offers that I get. And that's the, uh, you know, it's the same as uh, applying to uh, to a competitive college, right? You don't just apply to one and hope to get in because you know that if it's Harvard, they could certainly fill their freshman class with all valedictorians and turn away, you know, people that got anything other than a 4.0 grade point average. In other words, you could even you could you could have a you could be a perfect candidate and still not get accepted because there's a limited number of spaces there. Right. So. No, maybe that's a good way to look at it because nobody takes college rejection personally, not right. to the degree that they do job interviews for some reason. I don't think they do with job interviews either. I think that uh, I, I don't think they're taking it so personally usually. I think they're just like, hmm. you know, and then they are asking, I'd really like to know why. But sometimes, you know, I kind of don't want to tell you why, you know, and I'm perfectly <laughs> happy to give people like interview tips and stuff like that. Like, you know, try to be less, I mean, but what's a good tip? Like try to be less nervous. That's not, I don't know how to give interview tips. <laughs> don't kill anyone while you're on the job. But yeah, but I I, I, I kill people accidentally. That's the trouble. It's never intentional when I'm in the interview. Um, so they were all bad guys. You understand? I had to kill them. So yeah. No, it's a complicated topic, and I think it's it's worthy of discussion because it is complicated. Sure. You know, it's like on the one hand, every, you know, I think candidates deserve some level of feedback. On the other hand, you know, that's not really always appropriate for the people doing the interview to give them that feedback, as you've pointed out. Yeah. So I, I think on some level you have to be analyzed, but don't overanalyze. One I thing mean, we do uh, almost as a matter of policy, like as a matter of policy, we just don't tell people uh, anything. But also as a matter of policy, if the reason is specifically that we feel like you're smart but just not ready, we will tell you that explicitly in hopes that you'll apply again in the future. This especially applies to younger interns and stuff. We're like, listen, we just can't you know, hire you this year, but we really, really encourage you to apply next year. And you know, we're, we're pretty explicit about that in hopes that they will apply later when they have more experience. Right. Okay, good. And well, do you have any uh, stack overflow questions? That yeah, you like yeah, I got, I got one. I got one. I got one. Uh, let's just take a random one. Um, random? What? No. I heard people say that in the large fall... Oh, sorry. Um, I have heard people say that the large fall in people graduating with CS-based degrees will soon cause developer salaries to rise due to the effect of a smaller supply but ever-increasing demand. I think we did that one already. Okay, deleted. <laughs> I just can keep I, forgetting I, to uncheck them. All right, I got another one. Yeah. I got to come up with another one. 
Um, what programming language should be taught in computer science 101? <laughs> oh, uh, that's a good one for you, Joel. Why not? This is, we're just going around in circles, aren't we? Not necessarily. This podcast I mean, is I think repeating this is a, itself. No, I think this is an interesting one. Okay, prologue. I mean, prologue <laughs> <laughs> well actually my answer to that question is I, I think that i wish we'd stop emphasizing the language stuff so much i, I, I guess yeah, that's the I, same I, point I, you were making about steve yeah. Hege was like let's talk about building applications that people give a crap about right yeah. that are actually usable and you know have actually you know a market mm-hmm. that, that somebody would actually care and want to use this program right it's like how do we get to there yeah the you know, worst and i think thing the language happen. is like yeah, the last thing. If you, you want- if you choose a wrong wrong programming language for your project, unless it's radically wrong, as long as you're choosing something reasonably mainstream uh, and a reasonably mainstream platform, the worst thing that can possibly happen is that you're going to have to write relatively verbose code because your language doesn't have a concise way to express something that another language can, ex- you know, might have some syntactic sugar f- for. But it doesn't. Well- that just that, that might slow you down a tiny bit. But you know, and it is ideal to choose an ideal language but ah, it's just not the be all and end all of, of software design it really isn't it's not that. and it's not that important to boy you know when I was in 7th grade I used to go down to the University of New Mexico computer lab and play around there were these teletype printing terminals so you would type on like a typewriter type keypad and it was connected at 300 baud to this mainframe IBM 360 computer and you would type little commands and hit enter and it would execute them and print them on a dot matrix printer that was going <laughs> on this gigantic piece of fanfold paper. And we would go in there and we'd play Star Trek. And Star Trek was a game where you had a 10 by 10 grid of dots that would print. Oh, I've played and that. You were Believe the me. X and the Klingon ship was an H. And you had, to, you had to fire at the Klingon ship by saying, you know, like, fire photon torpedoes 20 degrees. And then the Klingon ship would move, of course, and so you would miss. <laughs> oh, that was the whole game. Um... Yeah, that was pretty much it. That was the game. Then you can move and try to fire again, and how retarded can you get? But I did this for several years, and then I started trying to learn the programming languages that were available in the system, and the three programming languages. The the system, which nobody's ever heard of, and I don't think anybody ever installed except for the University of New Mexico because they were daft, um, was called Call OS, and it was an interactive time-sharing system for OS 360 that supported three programming languages. They were BASIC, Fortran, and PL1. Although it was a subset of BASIC, a subset of Fortran, and a subset of PL1, it was the same subset. And in fact, I believe that I learned later that they were really just sort of these very simple preprocessors that preprocessed whatever subset of those languages that you used into the same kind of internal mushy stuff. I don't think they were sort of standalone full-fledged compilers because they, they really all had kind of the same functionality, just slightly different syntax. Like .NET. And anyway, there was this... I was 13... And there was this uh, uh, there was this cool nineteen year old there who was a computer science student, um, and he was really cool, and and um, really muscular too. And he would wear these tight tight T shirts, and <laughs> it's not really relevant, but that's just to show how cool he was. <laughs> um, a muscular programmer that is somewhat rare, but yeah. go ahead. Um, but like a, like you could tell that he was like captain of the football team, kind of cool. And I asked him what programming language, how many programming languages he knew. Because he was like, I'm a computer science student. And I'm like, oh, yeah, how many programming languages do you know? And he was like, psych, you know, the programming languages is not really the point, knowing a bunch of programming languages. It's just not, uh, you know. So ever since I've, I'm, I've been 13, I have known that the programming languages is not the point of what we do as computer programmers. I agree. That's, so maybe, maybe I guess what we're saying is they're asking their own question. So if you're yeah. at a curriculum where they're saying they're agonizing over what language do we use yes. to teach our beginning programmers, then you're exactly. already sort of in yes. trouble. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're asking the wrong questions right. about your education. Exactly. Uh, the right question is what type of programming do you want to train people to do? And, and these days, the, the people I, the, that I think are thinking about it correctly are, fall into two groups. They're the people that want to teach you computer science, the theory, and the people that want to teach you computer programming, the skill. And the people that want to teach you computer science, the theory, I think, are using languages like Scheme, where you do things, you can do things like reason about code and, uh, and so on and so forth. You can, you, can, you can prove things about code and 
teaching like recursion through a language scheme is a particularly good teaching language, but um, but there they, you know that 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 particular class could be taught in JavaScript just as well, uh, or any language that has sufficient uh, recur you know capabilities for things like recursion. Uh, the scheme just allows you not to waste time on uh, useful features that you might need in a programming language that could actually be used. <laughs> it lets you skip directly to the. Um, so that's uh, um, that, that's the one course, which is I want to teach you academic computer science for theoretical proving things about stuff, um, and the 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 the, the pedagogical prince people who who are going in that direction tend to start with a language like Scheme, and um, the other direction, which is the new uh, MIT curriculum, um, is to say we want to teach you how to be programmers. What programmers do these days is they deal with badly documented APIs that don't work the way they're supposed to, that are constantly falling down and tripping over things, and are just you know, you're, you're working almost in a scientific mode where in order to even use an API or write code, you have to try things and figure them out and come up with little experiments and try the little experiments and then spend the rest of your life debugging because your API you're using is so leaky and the abstractions that you're using are so are, are so leaky and are, are, are flailing so badly. And the idea that they came up with uh, at MIT is that uh, the first-year programming students should learn how to program robots to do things because they said the robot libraries are always going to be badly documented. Uh, and the robots themselves are, although it may appear very simple to tell a robot to drive forward, the minute you do that and you see that you know, the floor is not exactly straight, and so the robot tends to turn a little bit, and you realize that uh, programming is is more of a scientific art of just trying things until you finally bash your stupid API into submission, and that programming robots is a very good <laughs> metaphor for this. Uh, that's great. Right? That's so true. Like, if you've ever <laughs> tried no to elegance. program Mindstorms, I mean, you could try to figure it out in theory, and then yeah. you write the code, and, you know, at step two, the robot would just fall off the table, and you'd say, what the... Heck, and then you'd realize that merely telling the wheels to spin at the same speed doesn't really cause that to happen. And um, and so this is indeed what what the what the MIT uh, curriculum came up with, and and they chose the Python programming language not because they have any particular affection for it, but simply because uh, it was a good language to use for the robots that they wanted to program. It would just happen to work well with that particular robot library. And, and what they what they care about is not the actual language. You know, they pick the best language for the job, but it's not a matter of teaching you the Python. It's a matter of teaching you to be a programmer in an environment where everything is constantly falling down around you and nothing works as documented, even if there were documentation, which there isn't. And if there is documentation, it's the kind that has been written by a technical writer who's afraid to go into the programmer's office because the last time she did that, she got her head bit off. That's that's a great uh, example. And I, I have a question on Stack Overflow that segues directly into that. And it's... Sure. How can I teach a know-it-all beginner programmer? Oh, yeah, I remember that one. 868301. And I really like the responses to this thing. And I think particularly people who grew up as programmers, and I think a lot of the, the hardcore guys you know, were programmers from a very early age, so they were the know-it-all beginner programmer, sure. right? Like everybody has been through the stage. Almost everybody has been through the stage where they're young, they're <laughs> full of piss and vinegar, and they know everything about everything, and you can't teach them anything. And, I love and this comment. For me – this comment says, I have met people like this. There's always one day when they come and declare, I have found a bug in GCC. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's, that's it's, that's it's, a case for the uh, comment. the first day, day that they find a bug in GCC. Yeah. And I really like the responses, particularly the number one response, which is true. It's like you have to fail. I mean, that's the only thing they can really help. The, the, one of the comments is, hell, make them fail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like if you know they're doing something that's wrong and they're just too headstrong to agree with you, yep. like let them – like some of the security exploits that we've had, I mean, we went in being cautious. We knew we were making mistakes, but if you were really headstrong, it's like, ah, this code has no security vulnerabilities. Just say, fine, you know, put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you could nudge a few people that are really good to sort of hack in and say, hey, guess what? I'm logged in as you, which <laughs> has actually happened to me. Uh, and then you get, you know, a bit of humble pie. And then if you get enough humble pie and you're not a complete idiot, then you kind of learn that you don't actually know everything. And you should become – and you know it's working because you become a programmer like the rest of us, which is perpetually cowering in fear, shivering in the corner of the room, hoping that the bad man doesn't come back. <laughs> is that is that one of the comments? Uh, no, that's just what I that, – that's just like what, what the rest of our programmers are like. Nothing can ever possibly work. You can write some code. Nothing can ever possibly work. <laughs> that's Joel's like, programming no, motto. That's no great. code that you write can possibly can possibly work. 
<laughs> That's the level of humbleness it takes. Uh, I, I have, I, have you ever written code and had it work right the first time? I mean, it gets to the point where you're just surprised that it, is, it even appears to be working, and, and you haven't yet found the bugs. Well, when, when it appears to run, then I know there's some secret thing wrong with it. So that's even worse, you exactly. know, when it runs exactly. the first time. <laughs> it's like right. then you're more – They're tricky. That, that's what you just – like I say, you have to be shivering naked in the corner of the room in the fetal position. Yes. Crying, make it but stop, this, make it stop. This is a really great thread. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a fine case for discussion questions that are actually on topic and add to Stack Overflow because there's some really brilliant responses in here that are really, really uh, helpful. Mm-hmm. So. I yeah. encourage everybody to look at that. And of course, my, you know, my, my watershed moment was code complete, you know, finding code complete. So you can always throw a copy of code complete at them if they're in a place where they'll actually read it and not just let it bounce off their head. Yeah, that is a, that is a good book. I, I always feel like it, it sort of, it, it's got some great stuff. Does it, do you think code complete needs to be updated a little bit? It's getting well, it was updated in 2004. Oh, it was? That was basically 10 years. Yeah. Right, so I, I would reason. say it's reasonably up to date. Okay. Okay. No, there's a few parts in it that I don't agree with. Obviously, I think it's true of any book, like the Bible, for example. Uh, <laughs> sure, it's got but, uh, just just tear out Leviticus, and you're, you're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. Like uh, but I think the two things that would help. What I would recommend is one: if they're in a place where they can accept code complete and will actually read, not you know, take it to heart, because there's some really cool stuff in there. Sure. For for even if you think you're a badass, there's stuff in there that will help you. Uh, and then two, just being around other programmers that have more experience. I mean, as a young programmer who thought I knew everything, I was lucky to get in with another guy who had been through a lot more failure cycles than I had. And he would sort of shake his head and say, you know, you don't understand how this stuff works. And mm-hmm. and he was right, I didn't. And, you know, if you're around a bunch of other young programmers that all think they know everything, you're screwed. That's my point. Is like try to get right. in a company where you can learn from the people you're working sure. with that actually have some level of experience above yours. This is one of the uh, problems with uh, like I started a company with a bunch of my friends from school, and right after we graduated, and and it just becomes a children's crusade. Yeah, so to speak. I agree. Of, you got to mix it up. You got to have some people in there that have experience in different things and and some different breadth of experience as programmers to have a really good team. Lord of so. the Flies, it becomes. Then it's all about you know who's piggy, and if you don't know who's piggy, then you're piggy. That's, <laughs> you're that's piggy. not good, right? If you don't know who's piggy, it must be you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. uh, well, this has been an edifying and entertaining uh, episode of the Stack Overflow podcast. Yes, I'm trying to get. I I, I finally caved. I'm trying to get Jason Calacanis for for next week's episode, but his really Are Gmail, you his no? Gmail account is full. So full. I, I, I email to him, and he's like, "Okay, sure." And then it, uh, and I'm like, all right, come by at such and such a time, and that one bounced. <laughs> Maybe you can reply to him on Twitter or something. Twitter. Anyhow, so tune in next week, and you either will or you won't hear Jason Calacanis. And, you know, if he's an ass, we won't have a podcast next week. <laughs> I That's think it'll turn that. out okay. Um, in the meantime, if you have any questions for us, you want to call in with a question, it would be really helpful because I've completely emptied the, uh, the, the queue. Uh, of uh, recent questions, we have some really old questions, but I, you know, after a while, they're just old. So stale. Yeah, if you have a if you have a question or a, a subject of uh, of conversation for the Stack Overflow podcast, you can call the podcast hotline at six four six eight two six three eight seven nine. Try to keep it under ninety seconds, and and uh, give us your name and, and spell it for us if it's if it's weird, so that we can type it up into the show notes. Um, the other thing you can do is uh, just uh, record like an MP3 or Ogvorbis file using your audio uh, card, your sound card on your computer, and email it to podcast at stackoflow.com, and we'll uh, play it maybe on a future podcast. Um, actually, if you have questions for Jason, um, why not go ahead and send them in? We might have, have him on the show next week. Um, yeah. Jason Calacanis. I'll do, I'll do a blog entry for that. Um, the, uh, the Stack Overflow dev days, I think, are almost completely sold out, although we added a whole bunch of seats. We started with 300 seats in every city. We raised it to 800 in London, and those are gone. Uh, let's see. How many seats do we have left at the time I'm actually recording this? San Francisco. <laughs> Come on. Site, be fast. Oh, forget it. It's 42 like seats. some kind of a loop. We have oh we got ninety six left over in San Francisco, so that's not so bad. Um, I think we still have seats in we got seventy seven in Seattle. We have fifty three seats in Toronto, 
and 93 seats in Washington, D.C. So, th- so there are still some open seats. Um, Lon- the London event is all booked up uh, totally. We're going to try to open some additional cities or, or something, um, hopefully Cambridge uh, in the U.K., um, uh, just what about mainland Europe, though? I, th- I thought some people wanted mainland Europe. Uh, yeah, I know. We'll we'll try. We'll try. Okay. Um, we'll we'll uh, uh, yeah. It's all a matter of just like the logistics and the dates and that kind of stuff. Uh, this is kind of a big deal to put on five separate conferences and six. So right. Um, okay. Anyway, for more information about the Stack Overflow Dev Days, uh, you can either go to my blog and look for the, the May 12th entry, and there's a whole description of it. You can register for those things. It's $99 for one day of developer training. At uh, The website is stackoverflow.carsonified.com. Carson, like Carson, like Johnny Carson, I-F-I-E-D. And Carsonified is the conference company um, that is uh, handling all the logistics for us. Uh, there's a wiki uh, every week. Um, that people use to uh, type in transcripts of all or part of the show. So if there's something you heard that you like and you would like to contribute to humanity and uh, to the hearing impaired by uh, writing up the transcript, uh, that happens at the transcript wiki, which we'll link to from the show notes at blog.stackoverflow.com, or you can go directly there by going to stackoverflow.fogbugs.com. I don't know how I remember any of this. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.